Welcome to the B2B Marketing and Copywriting Podcast. I'm your host, Linda Malone, certified conversion copywriter, copy strategist, and founder of Copyworks. Join me each week as I speak with experts in the fields of marketing, copywriting, decision-making, psychology, and more, all with one goal, to help you attract your ideal customers and inspire them to take action. My guest today is Nancy Harhut. Nancy is the author of the best-selling book, Behavioral Science in Marketing, Drive Customer Action and Loyalty by Prompting Instinctive Responses. It is a super interesting book on all kinds of tactics that you can use in any kind of marketing to help people get off the fence and make a decision. So she's a chief creative officer at HBT Marketing, where she blends behavioral science and marketing best practices to help her clients crush benchmarks and controls. A frequent conference speaker, she has presented to audiences all over the world, but as she says, always in English, because even though she studied four years of Latin in school, nobody speaks that. So today we dive into what is behavioral science? Why should marketers be interested in it? The importance of using emotion in your marketing and how all of that works. And she shares some really relevant, interesting examples of behavioral science principles and their use in actual real life situations. So let's just dive right in. All right. So I am super excited to talk to you today, Nancy, because I feel like you have literally written the book and you said it's a book, but I consider it the book because it has everything in it about behavioral science and marketing. And so I just wanted to thank you so much for taking time to speak to me today on this. Thank you so much for having me and for those kind words about the book. I appreciate it. (laughs) Well, you know, why don't we just start right from the top? So we talk a lot about behavioral science and what really is it? And, you know, why should marketers in particular be interested in it? Sure. I mean, that's a, that's a great question. It's a good place to start because sometimes people see, you know, science in the title and the, you know, their eyes kind of roll back, you know, particularly if you're in marketing or in, you know, the creative end of marketing. Um, but, but the truth is very simply, behavioral science is the study of how people behave, right? It's, it's pretty simple. It's a study of how people behave. And more specifically, it's the study of uh, how they make the decisions they make. And what behavioral scientists have found is really very interesting. What they found is, very often people don't make decisions so much as default to them, right? Mm -hmm. Humans over the millennia have developed certain automatic, instinctive, reflexive behaviors. And as a result, what happens is we kind of cruise along through autopilot, we encounter a certain situation, and we just default to these hardwired behaviors, these automatic, instinctive, reflexive behaviors, giving them little, if any, thought. It's, It's a way for humans to conserve mental energy. And what's great for marketers is we can prompt or trigger these behaviors. So uh, it gives us opportunity to kind of get out ahead of things. And if we know we want someone to do X, and we know that when presented with Y, they're more likely to do X, it gives marketers the opportunity to make sure that we present them with Y. So it's, it's a great way to make sure that we're not just getting the right message to the right person at the right time, but we're doing it in the right way and in a, in a brain-friendly way, a way, a way that's going to be more likely for people to notice and understand, remember, and respond to the messages. Oh, well, the thing with that, too, is I have had people say to me, and this is all super interesting, like, okay, so they, this is the way our brains default to certain behavior. What about when someone says, just playing devil's advocate, well, isn't that kind of manipulating? Are you manipulating people with your words? I mean, what would you say to that? 
Ah, yes, the M word, manipulation. <laughs> um, so I actually prefer the other M word. I prefer I prefer motivation, right? Okay. And uh, because here, here's the thing, we as marketers cannot make people do something they don't want to make, that they don't want to do, right? We can't make them do something that they don't want to do. But what we can do is we can we can help them. Now, of course, as marketers, it's incumbent upon us to use these techniques, these tactics responsibly, right? We want to treat our customers and prospects with respect. But you know, think about it. We've got, say, for example, a new product that we're launching. So there's going to be a you know a small number of people when they see the announcement, they're going to say, "Oh my gosh, I have been searching for this. This is perfect. It's exactly what I want. Sign me up. Buying it right now." And there's going to be another group of people. And it's probably also a smaller group. And they're going to be like, no way, no how, never going to happen. I would never in a million years use that. Or if I did, I would go to my preferred provider. I've already got a relationship with them. I'm not, I'm not going to use you guys. And then there's a much larger group in the middle. And these are people who could potentially benefit from the product or service that you're offering. But you first have to catch their attention. You first have to make them aware of the fact that you're offering it. They first have to understand about the product that you're offering. They've got to remember it came from you and they've got to be motivated to respond. All of this against a backdrop of the thousands and thousands of decisions people need to make and, and the, the, all the competing bids for their attention during the course of the day. So anything we can do to make it more likely that people are going to pay attention to our message is a good thing. you know. And mm -hmm. We can't force them to do something they don't want to do, but we can help them find the things that they do want to do. And so that's where I come down on, on the, the M word <laughs> manipulation. <laughs> I don't feel it's as manipulative as it is motivating them and, and, and helping people. you know. But again, right. we want to use these responsibly. We don't want to lie. We don't want to misuse them. We don't want to misrepresent what it right. is we're saying. But if we're being truthful, we can actually be helpful to people. Right. So manipulating would be like clickbaity or something where you're really misleading people with your messaging. So that's not at all what this is about. So yeah, I mean, you yeah. know, you could say, you know, uh, there's only five spots left, right, for this B2B training session. And, you know, that could be very helpful for someone who was kind of on the fence, but said, oh my gosh, there's only five, I better get in. But then if you say the same thing the next day and the next week and the next month, that's manipulative. That's not being responsible. That's not being respectful. And, and that's not something I would ever recommend. It's not ethical. Right. So when Nordstrom says there's only one pair of the jeans left that I, that I have in my shopping cart and, and I end up buying it. <laughs> I never know if that, but sometimes I've actually done that and then changed my mind, like put it in the car. I go back and they are gone. Like, so I don't think they're actually doing that to manipulate people, but it, yeah. it is a definite motivator for sure. Well, you know, it is because, you know, if you were looking at those jeans and you're like, oh, I'll come back tomorrow and then they were gone, you'd be kind of bummed. You'd be like, geez, Nordstrom, you know, you, you probably saw me online. You saw me looking at them. Why didn't you tell me there was only one <laughs> pair of my size left? You know, like that would have been a nice thing to do for me. I'm a customer, you know? Right. So uh, Exactly. And speaking of decision-making, so it's been said and research has shown that we do make decisions based on emotion. So can you tell me about the importance of emotion in, in decision-making and how you talk about it in your book? Yeah. So behavioral scientists have actually found that people make decisions for emotional reasons, and then they later justify those decisions to themselves and to other people with rational reasons. And this is true whether you're talking B2C or B2B. And sometimes it's a lot easier for a marketer to say, well, sure. And in B2C, that makes sense. I, you know, I want those jeans because they're going to make me look good. And there's a lot of emotion there, you know, but I'm selling computer equipment or I'm selling software, you know, but, but the truth is, you know, people are people, whether they're at home, whether they're at work, and we have certain, you know, things that motivate us. We want to make a good decision for the company, obviously, but 
also in there is the idea that, you know, we want, we want to look good to our boss or we want the board to be, you know, happy with us. And, and we want our employees to be able to successfully use something that we roll out. Or we want to get home in time to have dinner with our spouse and kids. You know, there are all these other things that are kind of wrapped up in decisions. And I was lucky enough to do some work for a company that was making uh, business intelligence software. And, you know, there are a number of different things you can say about business intelligence software. You can, you know, talk about what the product is and you can talk about what it does, the fact that it unlocks data that's in these disparate databases. And you can talk about why that's important because it's frustrating if you can't get the data that you need. But we drilled a little bit deeper and we came up with this idea that if you're an executive and you're being asked to make decisions and you know that you don't have access to all the data that you need, you know that you're, you know, you're kind of rolling the dice every time you make a decision. And there could be a time when you're going to make a decision and then other information is going to bubble up that you didn't have access to. And it's, you know, it's going to contradict what you had decided. And that can have real ramifications for your own job, for the job of your people, for your company, for the standing of the company, for maybe even, you know, regulations with the company. And so we, we dug into that and we decided to position the product as, um, I think one of our headlines was the antacid for a diet of tough decisions, right? So it was this idea that, you know, look, you've got to make these tough decisions. They're the kind of decisions that can, you know, literally make you sick to your stomach, keep you up at night, give you agita. And we've got a product that can remove that problem for you. They got a a 13% increase in purchase intent when they rolled out with the campaign. So uh, it's, you know, it's just another example of the fact that even in B2B, emotions matter. People make decisions for emotional reasons, and then they justify with the rational reasons. So what it says to us is we want both of those components in our marketing messages. Yeah. And that makes so much sense because one thing I found, I'm very active on LinkedIn. And since I've been on LinkedIn, probably it's been two years, I've been very, very consistent. And I've got to talk to a lot of executives. And before I would meet them. A lot of times I'd look at their profile and I would be um, sort of intimidated, you know, and just because of everything they've accomplished. And it's like, well, I haven't done that. And then, but then when I talk to them, it's a whole different thing. Like they're just people, you know, and we, I think we have this thing in our mind where, especially with, with B2B, that we, especially as a copywriter, one of the struggles that I have is that people want to use big words and they want to use, you know, especially if it's a SaaS company you know, we need to keep this language in there. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because you do talk a lot about like clarifying, like a lot of the the tactics that you describe in your book have to do with really making things clear for people. What would you say to that when I had a whole post on LinkedIn a while back about how writing at the fifth grade level was supposed to be, what research has shown is easiest for people to read regardless of their educational background. I mean, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Linda. There's been a lot of research that supports this. And and also, you're right about the prevailing feeling out there. It's like, oh, I'm writing to a, a B2B audience. I'm writing to an educated audience. We're talking about a sophisticated product. And as a result, we as, as the writers have to use these, you know, big words and these long running sentences and these really thick paragraphs because, we, you know, we have to demonstrate that we're serious about this. And, the, you know, the, the truth is that can actually backfire on us. There was a a study that was done, I think, by Oppenheimer, where they took abstracts of research dissertations and they found every nine letter or more word and they replaced it with a shorter synonym. And then they had people, you know, read either the original text or the shortened word text. And what they found was not only did people prefer 
the shortened copy, they judge the authors to be more intelligent. And I, I keep going back to that study because a lot of times, again, in B2B, like, oh, no, no, you know, based on our audience, you know, and based on our brand, we have to do this. And the truth is, no, you don't. You know, you don't have to do that. People do prefer things that are just easier to grasp. I think there's a case to be made to drop in an acronym or a buzzword here or there to kind of say, hey, we're, you know, dolphin clicking. We're part of the same trunk. You know, like I get you, you get me. If you're going to do that, you want to do it sparingly. If you're going to use an acronym, you want to make sure that you define it because you can't count on the fact that everyone who's going to be consuming your content is going to be familiar with the, the acronyms, with the, you know, buzz phrases. And the truth is we're, we're trying to consume all this content. We're trying to make all of these decisions at the same time. Anything we can do to make information more, uh, what a behavioral scientist would call cognitively fluent. Anything we can do to make things more cognitively fluent is a good thing. And when I say cognitively fluent, what I mean is it's this idea that people prefer things that are easier to think about, easier to understand. Not only do we prefer them, we judge them to be more truthful and more accurate, and we feel more confident in our ability to make a decision about them. So we're in marketing. Like that's, you know, that's a home run for us, right? We want people to believe us. We, we want people to find us to be credible and trustworthy. And we certainly want people to feel confident about, a, you know, their ability to make a decision. If they're not confident, they're going to back away from it. They're going to walk away from it. They'll delay it or never make it. And that doesn't benefit anybody. So making things understandable, making them you know, easy to absorb, it's smart, whether you're in B2B, B2C, software as a service, uh, you know, beer and donuts, whatever it is, you know, it's, it's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. I run into that a lot with like corporate clients who are used to really just, I'll, I'll look at copy and they'll say, you know, can you just edit this, make it simpler? And then when I make suggestions, I get a pushback. And on LinkedIn, when I had posted about this a while ago, I actually, um, I don't know if I did a poll, this was over a year ago, but I had one woman say, my audience would be insulted by, you know, some, and I said, the thing is, they don't know. It's not like you're using baby talk. I mean, you're just, because part of the writing as, a, a, so a fifth grader would understand it, is that it's shorter sentences. It's not just the words, but it's breaking it up, like you said, you know, using shorter sentences, one thought per sentence. And that's something that, you don't even know that when you're reading it, that it's it's at a fifth grade level. In fact, it's very hard. I'll take my, there's all kinds of uh, Hemingway and there's Lesh reading analytics. So you can take cut and paste your copy, put it into their software, and it'll automatically tell you what reading level it is. Like most of what I write, even though I try to keep it simple, is like at least like 10th grade. And then to make it so that it's simpler, it's not easy. And I tell people that it's not like this is, you know, an easy thing to do. I just write, you know, super simple. No, I mean, it takes some practice. And I usually give up at around seventh grade. I'm like, all right, that's good. Close <laughs> enough. Close enough. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, but, but it's funny, you know, you make a good point. They're like, oh, we shouldn't be doing this. And the truth is we do lots of other things to make our marketing messages more accessible. Right. I mean, we choose the right media, for example. We don't put them in the wrong media and make it hard and say, okay, well, we'll let them, you know, work to find them. No, we, you know, we make sure that that we're in the right media and, you know, we design in a certain way, you know, we have product demonstrations. We, we do all kinds of things. Why wouldn't we also write in a way that would make it easier for people to absorb the message? I mean, it's one more tool we have at our disposal. It makes perfect sense. Right. Do you find, because I always think this is funny, you know, being in marketing, do you have, or, or, or do people in general have a particular marketing tactic, like out of all the things you talk about, so many things in your book, is there one in particular that is really hard to resist? Like I'm thinking the reciprocity one. So I get, you know, stamps from, you know, like I'm a big, you know, 
um, advocate of, you know, animal rescues. And so because I donated to one organization, now I get bombarded and they're sending me calendars, they're sending me stamps. And I was like, oh. so, you know, how, like, what do you think is, is that one of the hardest ones or what do you think is a hard one to, uh, to ignore? That is, uh, it's definitely a hard one to resist it. In particular, you know, you're citing um, donations and not-for-profit and they're, um, known for sharing their list. If you donate to one, that charity will, you know, swap list with another charity saying, here's some hot donors. I'll give you yours if you'll give me mine. So that's why you're showing up on all of these. But um, but it's true. We're we're hardwired to, you know, kind of answer in kind what someone has done for us. And and when I say hardwired, I mean it's it goes back to our ancestors. And back at, you know, at that level, it was something to help keep us alive, basically. You know, like if we weren't cooperative, if, if we didn't return favors, if we weren't civil to each other, you know, we would be outcast and it would have been very, very hard to, you know, survive on your own outside of the tribe at, at that point. And so this is like hardwired into us. And all these years later, you know, it still governs the way we react. And you can give someone something, whether they ask for it or not, you know, but once they have it, they kind of feel a little bit indebted. They feel obligated to, to do something in return. We had a client, a B2B client who sold financial funds and they had a, a bunch of different financial advisors that would represent them, but the financial advisors could represent a number of different providers. And these particular financial, this group of financial advisors had stopped dealing with our client for the last 12 months. And our client had tried to re-engage them, calls, emails, whatnot, and they just weren't getting anywhere. So they came to us and they said, well, we want to send them something. We want, you know, we want you to help us re-engage them. So we used the reciprocity principle. We shot them an email that said, um, we've picked out a gift, especially for you. This came from the wholesaler of our client. We picked out a gift, especially for you. Watch your mailbox. It'll be arriving, you know, this week. And then, you know, a few days later in the USPS, you know, mail arrives this white box. And inside the box is a framed New Yorker cartoon. And it was, a, it was a funny cartoon that had to do with, you know, being in financial services, working in that industry. And the cartoon caption was customized, right? It was personalized. So Linda, yours would have had Linda in it. Mine would have had Nancy in it. So it's like really cool. I mean, you get this gift, you weren't expecting it, but it's framed. It's, it's a New Yorker cartoon. Your name is in it. It's going to be on your desk or on your wall. And, uh, and then there was just a short note from the wholesaler that said, hey, we, you know, we'd love to connect. Please get in touch. If I don't hear from you, I'll be reaching out soon. And, um, you know, you could see how You'd be like, oh, gee, I should probably call. Or at the very least, if they called, you couldn't say to your administrative assistant, tell them I'm not here. I mean, you, you know, there's the right. cartoon hanging on your wall. You know, they ended up reactivating a large number of these financial advisors and they traced $68 million of incremental revenue to the program. So wow. like, that's powerful, you know? And, and so like, you know, you're saying, is that a hard one to resist reciprocity? It is, you know, like, you might've said, Gene, Nancy, why are you spending money sending a gift to people who are no longer doing business with your client? Why not spend that money to send gifts to the people who are doing business, right? Like that would make more sense. And that's certainly a good thing to do to reinforce behavior. But reciprocity is a very hard thing to, you know, to resist. Someone does something for you. You don't right. want to feel like you owe them. You, you want to kind of even the the score. You want to, you know, uh, wipe the slate clean so that, you know, you're both on equal footing again. It's just hardwired in us and, and that's what we do. Yeah. I think where it gets tough is in a real life situation, as you're talking, I'm thinking about you know, people who want to barter for your services. That to me just almost never works out because I've had people say, hey, can you do some copywriting for me? And well, because you don't know how to balance that. You know, there's not really, it's like helping somebody move, which is like everyone's nightmare, right? It's like, if I help you move, will you like build my next house? Because it's just such a hassle. You know, in that case, would you agree that you just kind of want to just do it and not expect anything in return? Because it just seems like it's so hard to, how do you find that balance? You know, I mean, this is a little different than, you know, what we're talking about, but it's still that reciprocity. 
principle. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely reciprocal. I think there's, you know, there's a difference though between going to someone and saying, if I do this for you, will you do this for me? That that's more of an upfront arrangement or, you know, transaction or incentive even. You know, right. if you do this, I'll do this for you, versus here, I've just done this for you. You didn't ask for it, or maybe you did, you know, but but I've just done this for you. Now I'm gonna say, hey, would you be able to, you know, so um, you know, maybe you've downloaded a white paper that I've published or gone to my video library of, of how-to videos or something, you know, so that you actually, you know, sought out that free information. But then after you've consumed the content and decided you're going to make a purchase, you're probably more likely to go back to me because I was the one who provided the information, you know, uh, or mm-hmm. maybe I sent you the information. You didn't ask for it, but I sent it and you found it helpful. So there, you're again, a little bit more predisposed to working with me. Um, but I think if you go to someone ahead of time and say, you know, I will give you this if you do this for me. That works. It's called an incentive, but but it's a little bit different, you know, and it's right. I think it's a little bit easier that, to say no. But, you know, once someone helps you move, Linda, when they call you and say, hey, I'm moving, you're going to feel like you should start yeah. packing boxes for them. You know, <laughs> you're like, no oh, man, they did it for that. me. <laughs> there is yeah. no escaping it. I know. That's like the worst thing. And people will give you like pizza instead. And you're like, this is this in no way makes up for what the blood, sweat and tears I just put into this whole thing. But one of the things um, that surprised me in your book was about rhyming, how rhyming, I've never heard of this before. And I was talking to my husband about this and we're like, remember that? Like, I'm old enough to remember the plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. Alka-Seltzer commercial back in the 60s, I think it was. How does that work? It just seems so, again, simplistic, but yet people remember. I remember this from 100 years ago. Yeah, yeah. That, or Timex takes a licking and keeps on ticking. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You know, um, so yeah, so it's called rhyme is reason bias. And what behavioral scientists have found is that you can have two sentences that basically say the same thing. One of them rhymes, the other one doesn't. People will judge the rhyming phrase to be the more accurate, truthful, credible articulation of it, right? So if it rhymes, we just have a tendency to not only remember it, but also to believe that it's more credible to find it more more believable. And you're right, like back in the 60s, there were a lot of those, like plop, plop, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief it is, nationwide is on your side, which is still in use today. Uh, the best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup. That was another yeah. one that came out in the 60s when that, and I know that's a B2C example, but when that came out in the 60s, they trailed behind Maxwell House. When they rolled it out, they eventually closed the gap between Maxwell House and then overtook them. Wow. But it it is this idea that not only are rhyming phrases more memorable, but they're also more credible. And the reason they're more credible is it's easier for the human brain to process phrases that rhyme, right? The words that sound alike or begin with the same sounds, they're all more closely associated in the human brain. And as a result, they're more quickly retrieved. So if it's easier for the brain to process something, it simply feels right. And if something feels right, it's really not a big leap to assume that it is right. And Mm -hmm. that is the beauty of a rhyming phrase. And whether it's a a slogan or a tagline or a subject line or a headline, you know, we as marketers can get some real mileage out of phrases that that rhyme because not only are they more memorable, but people just have a tendency to believe them more. And that's so just that was one of the most surprising things I read. And it's funny because I, I think what fascinates me about behavioral science the most is that it's not anything we can control. I mean, we can be aware of it, right? But it's not like we can stop the the process in our own minds, you know, and I, I was watching a big stand-up comedian fan and this Nate Borgazzi was talking about how he says, apparently we have a smart part of our brain and a dumb part, you know, and he used these sorts of examples, like, like he was saying something like, well, if you smile, 
your, you know, the the dumb part of your brain thinks that you're actually happy. And he went on with these, you know, analogies like I said, I was just dying because he said, you know, why can't these two parts get together and like <laughs> just get on the same page? So I think that that's so fascinating. But what um, what do you think is your biggest takeaway that you want readers to get from your book? So, you know, I think it's that, um, you know, in marketing, we have the opportunity to influence people. Our customers and prospects think they know why they do what they do. But the truth of the matter is, very often there are factors at play that affect their decisions. And they may not even be aware of them. Often they're not. But if we as marketers are aware of them, we have, you know, an extra opportunity to influence people, to get them to do what we want them to do. I mean, obviously in marketing, we're trying to influence people, but but it's another way to help persuade people, to help make sure that they notice our message, that they understand it, that they remember it, and that they respond to it. And, you know, using these behavioral science techniques is is a great way to do that because if we know someone is going to do X when they see Y, let's make sure they see Y. It's hardwired. They're not thinking about it. They're probably not even aware of it, but we can help them make the decisions that benefit both them and us. Right. And a non, we use the M word again, but in a, <laughs> in a persuasive way that just helps them make a decision. That's what I always tell people about like conversion copywriting. It's that, you know, it's about getting people off the fence. It's like, if you're not sure where you want to go, well, here's, you know, let's present this kind of thing. So, so this has been awesome. Where can people find your book and how can they uh, contact you if they want to reach out? Well, thank you. So the book was published by Kogan Page. You can get it at the Kogan Page website. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, independent bookstores, just about uh, any place. If you Google it, you know, you'll you'll find it or Bing it, you'll find it. And then uh, you can find me on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Facebook. And my uh, agency that I co-founded is HBT Marketing. HBT stands for Human Behavior Triggers. And uh, we're at hbtmktg.com. And there's lots of uh, articles and and uh, links to podcasts and interviews and, and things like that. So if you're interested in behavioral science, you can get a deep dive right there. But uh, absolutely pick up the book, uh, 282 pages uh, 17 chapters and over 25 different, very practical, actionable behavioral science techniques that marketers can put to use right away very easily. Yeah. And I would say, just make sure you read it with like a highlighter in your hand. Cause I started reading it and already I'm like marking the whole thing out, but I'm like two chapters in it. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Nance. I really appreciate it. This has been great. Thank you, Linda. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. That wraps up today's episode. I hope you found it as fun to listen to as it was for me to record. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review and be sure to subscribe. And for additional info, visit my website at thecopyworks.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.